6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. We are to deal unsparingly with the deeds of the flesh. What are these deeds? Well, fornication, the word from which, uh, you know, uh, porn comes from, pornean. Sexual immorality in general, and that's a characteristic of our world, uh, as well as that of the Colossians. And what I teach, First and Second Corinthians, I usually call it First and Second Californians. <laughs> the word Corinthian came to mean fornicator. And any analogy with Hollywood is intentional. Okay. Next one is uncleanness. What does that really mean? Lustful impurity connected with loose living. I'm sure you don't have any of those here in Britain. We'll move on here. Inordinate affection. Pathos is the Greek term, but it's inappropriate or excessive affection. It's appetites that seek opportunities to satisfy themselves. That's translated here, inordinate affection. And evil concupiscence. And uh, that's uh, base evil desires. Unlawful lusts and desires lead to deeds is the problem. But remember the secret here. To purify our actions, we must purify our minds and hearts. And the secret of this that my wife has taught so effectively is 2 Corinthians 10.5, taking every thought captive. Your thought life is the prelude that gives you the opportunity to take control. Take every thought captive before it can take root into an ambition and an action of some kind. Take every thought captive. What a marvelous, marvelous directive that is. If you don't know what I'm talking about, get her book, uh, The Way of Agape. And covetousness. Pleonexion. Putting things in the place of God. Worship of self is in that category. Which is, of course, idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. All the way back to Exodus 20, verse 17, where God with his own finger wrote it in stone. No excuse can be offered on the ground of innate tendencies of human nature. That's the argument of the homosexual. I think we should have some lobbying groups for the murderers and for the adulterers. And there's other sins that deserve representation before our parliamentary groups, not just homosexual. Why should, why should homosexual uh, behavior be singled out as being somehow above other inordinate desires? Well, it's in my nature. No kidding. Well, do you know I'm a murderer? Sure, I remember. I, I have those thoughts. And I can go through a whole list. I won't shock you by going through the list, but you get the picture. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Ooh, ooh. What's this? For which things the what? Does God have wrath? Yes, he has. 
and he may have some surprising ones. The wrath of God. Let's take a look at a few of these. He has eternal wrath against sin, of course. I don't have to amplify that, but let's start with a broad brush right there. There is eschatological wrath. Eschatology is the end times. Eschatological wrath is the wrath that is unleashed at the, in the tribulation, right? It's detailed for you in Revelation 6 through 19 in very elaborate forms. That's the wrath, eschatological wrath of God. There's the calamitous wrath of God. Ask Noah about that. Genesis 6 through 9, the, the flood of Noah. God's wrath in the form of a calamity on the planet Earth. Unmistakable. Everybody there noticed it sooner or later. There's consequential wrath. We reap what we sow, the Scripture says. And that's a form of enforcement that we should be conscious of. I'll call that consequential wrath. But here's one that most people miss that I wanted to highlight because it's so operative in our lives. I'll call it the abandonment wrath. And I'll look at four places. We'll look at Judges 16, Proverbs 1, Hosea 4, and Romans 1. Judges 16.20 deals with Samson in his third visit to Delilah, where she challenged him, the Philistines be on you, and he wakes up and realizes he no longer has his strength. Because she found out the secret, cut his hair, which wasn't the issue, it was just a symbol of his commitment to God. But the point is, God abandoned him. Can you imagine Samson waking up and discovering that his traditional strength was gone? That, and he knew it was God's source, that God had abandoned him. Can you imagine the realization that God had abandoned him? Whew. Okay, there's another example, and that's the, the northern kingdom. After Solomon died, there was a civil war. The northern kingdom separated from the, the southern kingdom, and they were prosperous. Tremendous material prosperity, but they were, went into idol worship. And God sends Hosea up there to lay out his case that they're going to get destroyed. It isn't case, it's not, a, it's not a message, repent or else it's going to happen. No, he's announcing through Hosea what's going to happen, and here's why. And he lays out the prosecutor's case from chapter 4 through chapter 14 of Hosea, lays it all out. But here's the key verse. God says through Hosea, he says to Hosea, Ephraim, an idiom for the northern kingdom, is joined to idols. So leave him alone. God removes his hand of protection from the northern kingdom, and it's just a matter of time before Assyria wipes them out. They don't go into captivity like the southern kingdom to ultimately to return. No, they're obliterated as, as, as an entity. Ephraim is used 37 times in Hosea as an idiom for the whole northern kingdom. It's a synecdoche, as you call it, for the northern kingdom. It was the, it was the primary tribal constituent. And the parallels between Ephraim, or the northern kingdom, and the United States is sobering, conspicuous, and relevant. And we developed that thoroughly in a number of our materials because it's, the parallel is so clear that it's really worth our study to understand that God does have, uh, 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 there, there's a parallel. Let him alone. God's wrath on the northern kingdom was abandonment. He allowed their enemies to just wipe them out. Let him alone has a painful note of finality. It's not a temporary thing. He washes his hands of the northern kingdom, in a sense. Okay. Proverbs 1, starting about verse 24. 
God says, because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But ye have set at naught all my counsel and would none, and would none of my reproof. I also, God speaking, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh on you, then shall ye call upon me, but I will not answer. Boy. They shall seek me early. The word is actually earnestly in the original. They will seek me earnestly. But they shall not find me. For they that hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would have none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them. And the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. Wow! Description of the abandonment and wrath of God in the book of Proverbs, chapter 1. Now the question I have, and I primarily direct this to the United States audiences, but you can decide yourself if it has broader relevance. Is there a national indicator that would confirm God's abandonment? You know, for years I've taught from 2 Chronicles 7.14 where God says, if my people who are called by my name, if they'll do four things, I'll do three. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And I preached that for years as a call to repentance. I have to confess something to you, candidly. I'm not sure I can preach that anymore. I'm not sure I can preach that anymore. Because I suspect, I don't know this, I just suspect that we may be already under God's abandonment wrath. So the question I ask is, is there some kind of indicator, a national indicator that would confirm my position here? Am I premature? Or have we gone, have we crossed the line? Has he decided? Can I tell somehow? There is, I discover, a specific judgment of God that is so clearly identified. When I was doing additional research for an upgrade of our Genesis commentary some years ago, I was quite startled to discover that there is a jealousy of God that has priority over all the others. We always think of God as our Redeemer, because our, from our New Testament perspective, and that's fair. And yet, as you study the scripture, you discover that there's a, prior, there's a jealousy of God that preempts even that one. His number one identity that he's jealous of is his role as creator. I was quite startled to realize from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, his role as the creator of the universe is first. It's first. And uh, there's a specific judgment pronounced by God in the scriptures for those cultures that fail to recognize him as creator. It starts in Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. I've, read, I've studied Romans many years, taught it many times, and from verse 18 to the end, I read many times thinking it meant one thing, and I suddenly realized, ooh, it means something quite more distinctive. Let's take a look at this passage. 
and come to our own conclusions. Don't come to my conclusions, come to your own. But Paul writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So that's what we're talking about here in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, so far. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Notice this. We're talking creation, not redemption. You can't learn about the redemption from natural things, from the creation. That has to be revealed by the Holy Spirit to you. He's not talking about that. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. What's he talking about? What, what invisible things are clear? It's called design. The fact that we are in a designed environment. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they are without excuse. Man is, has no excuse not to recognize that we are the results of skillful craftsmanship, not randomness. That's absurd. So we're without excuse. Let's see where he goes from here. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. They chose darkness, in effect. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of an uncorruptible God into an image made like uncorruptible man and birds and four-footed feasts and creeping things. In other words, they chose idolatry instead. He's not finished yet. Wherefore, notice the next phrase, because of all of that, wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. Notice that. God gave them up. God is judging them. I never appreciated what we're dealing here is a description of something God is doing, not what they're doing. Because their failure to acknowledge him, God says, uh, he says this three times in here. God says, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. That's a judgment of God who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, here again, he, he goes into it. For this cause, God gave them up to what? What did he give them up to? Notice. Unto vile affections. For even their woman did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet or appropriate. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... God gave them over, there it is again, to a reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, 
implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, get this, but have pleasure in them that do them. What does this mean? See, I always thought this passage from Romans 8, uh, 1, 18 to the end was about homosexuality. Not really. It's about a judgment of God. They don't acknowledge Him as a creator, which they're held accountable to without excuse. He will ultimately give them over to all this stuff. It's a judgment of God. Well, from that perspective, I realize that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, which led to their destruction, was not homosexuality. It was the public condoning of it. That's really what's going on in Genesis 19. As I look at America, and I see that every day it being reconfirmed that we are on the path of destruction. I reluctantly, at least tentatively, suspect that it's too late. Not too late for individuals to repent, don't misunderstand me. But I do not look to a national repentance. I hope I'm wrong. God in His sovereignty may give us a revival. I don't know if He will. But I do know that the focus is now on the individual, not the collective. For lots of other reasons too, by the way. So let's back, get back to Colossians. In the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. <laughs> now Paul now turns to what we might call social sins. I love what G. Campbell Morgan calls these. They, he calls these the sins in good standing. <laughs> the social sins. But now ye also put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. That's our pollution problem. Anger. That's cherished begets wrath. Wrath, if not judged, begets malice. Malice is an attitude of ill will toward another. Ephesians 4 deals with this. It says, let not the sun set on your wrath. Blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Strange word, isn't it? Blasphemy is slander, either Godward or, to, or manward, if you will. It means to impute evil toward God or to seek to misrepresent Him, or pervert the truth as to the Father, the Son, or the Spirit. It means to speak injuriously of one another, to circulate wicked and untruthful reports against one's brethren. And uh, it, it seems so common, even among Christian newsletters or websites. It's astonishing to realize that it doesn't have to be untrue to be injurious. What's the most painful sin? It's gossip, a form of betrayal. We could spend a lot of time on that one. Filthy communication is just that, foul speech, coarse humor, obscene language. Some Christians think it is manly or contemporary to use this kind of speech. But if someone says to you, now take this with a grain of salt, you now can remind him of Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, which says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. See, salt is a symbol of purity, of grace, and, and purity go together. That's not the kind of salt that they think you're talking about, but that's what the salt that you should be lacing your conversation with. 
Verse 9 says, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Lie not. Lying is one of the very first evidences of a carnal nature. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. That's Psalm 58. A lie is a misrepresentation of truth, even if the words are accurate. It involves the intent to deceive. There are many entertainment elements that deal with things being accurate but still misleading or untruthful in their spirit. When a Christian lies, he is cooperating with Satan, the father of lies, so designated by Jesus himself in John 8, verse 44. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. John 14, John 15, and so on. Seeing that ye put off the old man with his deeds. Put off. These are terms of changing our garments. In the Greek, the grammar indicates it's once and for all. You do it once for, 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 for all. And uh, habits, we have habits and garments are synonyms. Garments are like habits and habits are like garments. At his resurrection, Jesus left his grave clothes behind. Lazarus, when he was raised... He was dead. Jesus dallied to make sure he was, so to speak, the fourth day, and he stinketh, Martha reminds us. Well, he was dead, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Why did he say, Lazarus, come forth? If he didn't call him by name, they all would have come forth. At least that's what we assume. So he was dead, but then he comes forth, and he's all entangled, bound up in his grave clothes. And so Jesus says, loose him and let him go. See, that's our problem. We're resurrected with Christ, but we don't get rid of our grave clothes. We carry the baggage that trammels us from success. See, initially he was dead. Then he was defeated until he got rid of his grave clothes. Once he did that, he was dangerous. In fact, so dangerous they had to plot to kill him. They couldn't have him walking around. John 12 talks about their plotting. And finally, then he's dining with the Lord. He was dead, then defeated, then dangerous. And then dining. You know that's true because it all starts with the D. So from, that would have seminary approval because it, it's alliterative. And I'm being facetious, of course. Three instructions. Seek the heavenly. That's the first four verses of this chapter. We died with Christ. We live in Christ. We are raised with Christ. We are hidden in Christ. We are glorified in Christ. And uh, the next verses 5 through 9, we should slay the earthly and from 10 and 11, we should strengthen the Christly. Those are the three instructions that Paul gives us in this chapter. But verse 10, he says, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Renewed. It's a present participle, which means it's continuous, indicating constantly being renewed. This is not the aorist or the past tense or what's perfect. It is the present, continuing. And... Uh, this is really echoes Romans 12, the first two verses. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you want to understand how to do that practically, uh, I, I call your attention to Nan, my wife's, the second book of her trilogy called Be Ye Transformed, a very practical, proven handbook for those that want to deal with that with respect to their personal walk. All this is the opposite of legalism. It's the spontaneous expression of the life of the head in the members here on earth. Um, put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. 
Man was created in the image of God. That's Genesis 1. When man sinned, this image of God was marred and ruined. Adam's children were born in the image of their father. In spite of the ravages of sin, man still bears the image of God. We are formed in God's image and deformed from God's image by sin. But through Jesus Christ, we can be transformed into God's image. We must be renewed in the spirit of our minds, according to Ephesians 4, and so on. As we grow in the knowledge of the Word of God, we, can, we will be transformed by the Spirit of God to share in the glorious image of God. God transformed us by the renewing of our minds. That's the very terms used in Romans 12. And this involves the study of God's Word and is the truth that sets us free from the old life, as Jesus points out in John 8. God's purpose for us is that we be conformed to the image of His Son. That's one of the primary purposes. That's in Romans 8, again, verse 29. Just the verse right after my favorite, which is 28. The favorite, Romans 8, 28. For we, for we know that all things work together for good to them are, that love God. Them are the called according to His purpose. The most, three most important words in that verse are the first three. And we know. We don't believe or hope. No, no. We know that all things work together for good. For everybody, no. For them that love God, who them, to them who are the called according to His purpose. That's who He's talking about. You want to make sure you're one of those. Let's continue Colossians verse, chapter 3, verse 11. Speaking, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, a barbarian, by the way, in the terms here, a barbarian was a term for people who didn't speak Greek. It comes to mean something quite different to us, but it, it's barbarian in a broader sense. But the ultimate bar barbarian in their mind was the Scythian. The Scythian was the ultimate barbarian. They were, it's a very colorful culture to study. A nomadic culture. Um, very, uh, um, we, we know a lot about them through Russian archaeologists and so forth. It's very worth understanding. See, Greeks regarded all non-Greeks as barbarians, but the Scythian was pro proverbially the worst. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 